We're in the Midwest to scare today for users of the nation's most popular over-the-counter painkiller, Tylenol. It began when people in suburban Chicago died after taking the medication. Authorities discovered bottles of the drug laced with cyanide. If you look at a bottle of Tylenol today, it comes in a small cardboard box that's glued shut. You open the box, and there's a bottle inside. The cap is wrapped in plastic. When you remove the plastic and unscrew the cap, there's a piece of foil attached to the top of the bottle. Peel it back, and there's the medicine. The glue, the plastic wrap, the foil. These are the three tamper-resistant seals used to convince consumers that it's safe to take Tylenol. Back in 1982, Tylenol bottles came in a similar paper box. Except it wasn't glued shut. And when you opened the cap, which wasn't wrapped in plastic, there was no tamper-resistant foil. There was only that little bit of cotton, which made consumers feel safe enough. If someone wanted to go into a store, open that little box, and say, put some poison pills into a bottle with the regular ones, it would be pretty easy to do, without anyone knowing, and without leaving a trace. I'm Christy Gutowski. And I'm Stacey St. Clair. This is Unsealed, the Tylenol Murders. Episode 2, Turf War. The next day, after the Janices had went to the hospital, the lab results confirmed that cyanide was in one of the most popular products in America, and the nation was in a full-blown panic. The county medical examiners urged that all stores in the area withdraw the product until investigators had determined whether the problem was at all widespread. No one knew how many more poison bottles were out there or where the killer might strike next. We don't know the extent of the contamination, so I think at this time uh, it would be wise not to take extra strength Tylenol at all. Police drove all around with bullhorns, warning people not to take the pain reliever. This product may be contaminated with cyanide and should be destroyed. Officials told people to flush their capsules down the toilet, just in case. Johnson & Johnson began pulling their product. 93,000 bottles of Tylenol extra-strength capsules were recalled from supermarkets and pharmacies across the country this afternoon. Some of those bottles were destroyed, and some were tested for cyanide. In laboratories, chemists were taking samples to find out which capsules were tainted and which were safe. But still, investigators had a lot of questions. How they had been contaminated, by whom, and how many other bottles there might be, nobody could say. Investigators kicked it into high gear. And the first order of business? Assemble the troops. The poisonings had taken place in two Illinois counties at this point. So a lot of law enforcement agencies had to figure this thing out together. Each of the villages or cities that had a poisoning uh, joined the task force. That's Roy Lane Jr. In 1982, I was a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and I was assigned to the Chicago office. By 1982, Agent Lane was 12 years into his FBI career. He was good at his job. He had already investigated a big-time mob boss and a bunch of crooked judges— And although he was third-generation law enforcement, that wasn't always the plan. I wanted to be a doctor, but then I met the woman that I was going to marry, and I didn't know how to afford everything. So I thought I'll be an FBI agent. Lane was from the Chicago suburbs, studied biology and chemistry in college. 
Tylenol was kind of the perfect case for him. President Reagan wanted the FBI involved, so they joined local law enforcement on the case, the Illinois State Police and five suburban police departments. The Tylenol Task Force was born. Second order of business, set up a command post out in the burbs. Command post sounds fancier than it actually was. It was just a state police office with lots of tables and phones and investigators in suits, ties, and sports jackets. Their first meeting was so crowded, it was standing room only. Almost 100 people showed up. Even a lead detective couldn't get a seat in his own station. Everyone wanted to solve the case, and everyone wanted to be the one to solve it. They settled on one theory pretty quickly, how the poison bottles got onto the shelves. Lane explains. Well, part of the investigation was, of course, looking into, was it introduced during the manufacturing process? Between the six victims so far, there were four poison bottles of Tylenol. Those bottles came from two different factories in two different states. Some of the tainted capsules came from Philadelphia, and some came from Texas. So the odds are that it would not be introduced during the manufacturing process. So then what we had to do was tackle, did these lots ever cross? So that was it in transport, storage, the warehouse, and none of those lots ever crossed. They were bottles with nothing in common, except that they'd ended up on the shelves in the Chicago area. So the theory was the tampering took place at the store. Investigators traced the poison bottles to three stores in the northwest and western suburbs. 12-year-old Mary Kellerman's bottle came from Jewel Food Store in Elk Grove Village. The Janice bottle also came from Jewel Food Store, but in Arlington Heights. Mary Reiner's bottle came from Frank's Finer Foods in Winfield. And they were pretty sure the bottle Mary McFarland bought came from Woolworth's department store in Lombard, just steps from where she worked. For all the devastation caused, the crime was deceptively simple. Now, how would that actually have been done, doctor? The deputy commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration at the time, Dr. Mark Novich, explained on PBS NewsHour. The most obvious uh, means is for someone to uh, surreptitiously remove uh, the product from uh, a retail shelf, uh, open it, take some capsules out, add some, uh, some cyanide crystals, and slip them back on the shelf. That's what the investigators decided the killer did, all over Chicagoland. And then three more bottles were found. One more in the city of Chicago and two more in the suburbs. They were turned in before they could kill anyone. But remember, officials encouraged people to destroy their Tylenol. So really, there's no way to absolutely confirm how many bottles were tainted. Those three other bottles, though, were still significant because they built law enforcement's theory that whoever did this had targeted the greater Chicagoland area specifically. And the really frustrating thing about the theory was that after the killer went around to each store, they easily could have hopped on a plane, boarded a train, or taken any of the expressways out of the city and gone anywhere.
Christy and I have known each other for 25 years. In the course of our friendship, we've probably covered more than 100 stories together. Five years ago, before we started reporting on the Tylenol murders, I got an email. Tuesday, August 1st, 2017, 7.32 p.m. From Christy Gutowski at chicagotribune.com. Subject. Idea. Tylenol cyanide deaths. This fall marks 35 years since seven Chicago, mostly suburban residents, died. The email said something like, we should look at this case. And I've got a source who can help us. But we didn't get a chance to circle back on the Tylenol murders. Because right after that email, Christy and I were assigned to cover the murder of Laquan McDonald, the black teenager who was shot 16 times by a white Chicago police officer. Then we moved on to the next story. And the next story. Four years went by. But I printed out that email. And I put it in a box, along with some other documents I had about Tylenol thinking maybe they would come in handy someday. And then, March 2020, we all began working from home because of the pandemic. We were told to grab what we needed and put the rest into storage. That's when I saw the box on Stacy's desk. I figured I wouldn't need those old papers to cover the pandemic. So I left the box on top of my desk with a note asking that someone store it until we came back to the newsroom. But I knew she'd never see that box again. So I grabbed it off her desk, and I drove it to her house. And that's where it sat, in my basement, until January 2022. I went downstairs on a Saturday morning, and that's when I saw it, in the corner of the basement, the box. I opened it up and found Christy's email. Right below her email was a report, marked confidential, dated April 12th, 1983. That report became our skeleton key to the story, our roadmap to the original Tylenol murders investigation, and it took us way down the rabbit hole. Because the report outlined all of the known evidence in the Tylenol task force investigation six months after the murders, and it listed all of the things the task force did to track down the killer. The task force used every technique they could think of, FBI agent Lane. So as we organized avenues of investigations like disgruntled employees, former employees, lawsuits, customers who had a problem, anybody that could um, make some money out of it. Maybe the victims had more in common than just the Tylenol bottles. Maybe they were targeted for some specific reason. Or maybe there was a single target and the other deaths were a ruse to cover it up. They also needed to consider whether a family member was the killer. The task force interviewed everyone they could. And then, of course, there were the tips and the call-ins that were assisting in the investigation. The task force set up a tip line and got 177 calls on the first day. A lot, but they were just getting started. Investigators went to funerals and took pictures of the people who showed up. They wanted to see if they could catch anyone showing up at more than one funeral or visiting the graves. And Johnson & Johnson offered a $100,000 reward to anyone with information leading to an arrest in the poisonings. Eventually, they had more than 6,000 tips to sort through. But there was just one problem. We had no subjects, no one of interest that we had identified. 
Then another Tylenol victim was found, setting the stage for a turf war that, for some, would last 40 years. On Wednesday night, September 29th, the day of the Tylenol murders, Jean Levengood was at Chicago O'Hare International Airport. She was a flight attendant for United Airlines and just finished her last trip for the day. Most nights after work, she and her best friend Paula Prince would meet for a drink, maybe hit the Burger King for a milkshake, and then the bars. That day, Paula said she had a surprise for Jean. She left me this note in my mailbox at the airport, and she said she had great news to tell me. Paula also was a United flight attendant. They both lived in the same Chicago high-rise. 1540 LaSalle. I was on the third floor, and she was on the seventh. Their building was a nice one, not in one of those apartments out in the suburbs where all their co-workers lived. By 1982, Jean and Paula were in their 30s. Both were still not married, but they wanted to be. And we all had these T-shirts that said, Marry me, fly free. (laughs) At this point, they'd been friends for almost 15 years. When Jean got back to her condo that night, she called Paula to catch up. But Paula never answered the phone. Two days went by, and Jean Levengood still hadn't heard from her friend. She was really worried. Paula hadn't answered the phone at her home. She'd missed her next flight, and then she didn't even pick up her paycheck from the airport. That wasn't normal for Paula. Jean called Paula's sister, Carol. I said, Carol, I'm going up because I checked the garage and her car is here. And she said, no, no, wait for me. She said, I don't want you going up by yourself. So I did. It was a one-bedroom apartment. Because when we opened the door, you could see right down the hall where she was lying. We thought she had been murdered because of the body. We both went to go in, and then Carol goes, no, we can't go in there. There might be somebody else. And I go, oh, and of course, we're hysterical at that point. We're crying. Jean and Carol called the police and went downstairs to wait for them in the lobby. And then that's when we saw the press out front. They were already there? The press got there before the police did. Charlie Ford and Jimmy Gilday were two police detectives who showed up. They both had been on the force for a while, and they were close friends. We're detective partners for seven years. Jimmy Gilday's one of the most straight-shooter coppers i ever worked with. He's a real good guy. That's Charlie Ford. We're pretty uh, similar-minded as far as uh, what we thought about doing police work. We were pretty simpatico that way. I actually spent more time with him every week than I did with my wife because we went to college together, too. (laughs) So we worked a part-time job as security at Gino's East Pizza two nights a week, and then we went to college three nights a week, too. So that's probably why my wife is my ex-wife now (laughs) and not the current one. By 1982, they were handling three or four murders a week. I want to take you to October 1st of, of 1982. What shift are you and Mr. Gilday working? And can you kind of walk us through that night? We worked the third watch, which is 4 to 12, 4 in the afternoon to midnight. We actually had a ride-along. With us. She was a college student. I think she was trying to write a thesis. And she got stories to tell her grandkids until she dies. We actually took her to another murder scene where some female florist got her throat cut. Then we get the call, so we go over to LaSalle Street where Paula Prince's apartment was. They went up to Paula's condo. Jimmy Gilday remembers it still. 
nice place, you know, everything neat as a pin, no sign of ransacking or anything like that. You know, there, there was nothing to indicate there was a struggle within the place. She's laying her torso with her head out, out into the hallway, and, and her hips and her legs are still into the bathroom. And she's laying on her back. And she was in the process, you said, of taking off her makeup? It looked that way. She had cotton balls and some cold cream on, on the vanity, plus the bottle of Tylenol with the cap taken off. Next to the open Tylenol box on the kitchen counter was a receipt from Walgreens. On Wednesday night, September 29th, two days before they found her, Paula Prince spent $2.39 on extra strength Tylenol. When she got home, she took one pill and collapsed. She'd paid for her own death. Paula was 35. Paula's death was the seventh in the Tylenol murders. It was also the last. But it was the start of something else. Paula died in the city of Chicago, not the suburbs. That meant the Chicago Police Department was now involved in the Tylenol task force. Chicago police detectives Jimmy Gilday and Charlie Ford weren't too pleased about that. They were city cops and handled multiple homicides every week. They knew murder and they had their own particular kind of swagger. After there were so many murders, it's, it was like, I didn't feel like, well, this is the big one. This is the one that's going to make me. I didn't feel that way at all. It was another case, and I handled it just the way I would every other case. I mean, I've, I've handled just bums that got murdered, and I worked just as hard on that case getting those solved as I did this one, because that's the way I am. Charlie Ford remembers one of the early task force meetings. We went to one meeting. They had it out in the suburbs someplace. Four or five other different agencies were involved in it. So now, the Chicago Police Department joined the FBI, the state police, and the five suburban police departments on the task force. The task force worked like this. In the morning, they got their assignments and shared leads. At the end of the workday, everyone would drive back to displays and share updates. Well, now they're asking a representative from each police department to come up and tell them what their case is and what stuff they have. Well, they're coming up there one at a time. Well, here's FBI so-and-so agent. He's going to tell us all about the Chicago case. And I'm sitting there. What is this? Paula Prince was in their jurisdiction. They would figure out who killed her. And so FBI, she gets up and he said, well, you know, they found it. I said, excuse me, whoa, whoa. I says, uh, agent, agent uh, I was the detective at the scene. You weren't there. What the hell is it? What, is, what are you giving this story for? Okay, Let's back up here for a second. There was deep-seated tension between the Chicago police and the FBI. It wasn't new. Most working detectives really don't trust the FBI. And if the FBI doesn't trust us... You could say the FBI didn't have a good reason to trust the Chicago police. And vice versa. A little while before the Tylenol murders, the FBI had finished a years-long investigation into the Chicago Police Department for corruption. The FBI figured out there were 10 Chicago police officers who were taking bribes in exchange for protecting heroin rings. There were other crimes happening, too. 
The FBI led a sting operation and arrested all 10 Chicago police officers. Those officers became known as the Marquette 10. The case left a permanent stain on the Chicago Police Department and soured their relationship with the feds. Charlie Ford felt like the FBI looked down on the Chicago police. And everybody's a big city police was all a crook and thug. That's their mentality. By 1982, the relationship between the FBI and CPD was at possibly an all-time low. And the Chicago police carried this over into their work on the Tylenol Task Force. They seemed to have an opinion about everything and everyone. Chicago police said leads weren't shared both ways. That's not the way they play. All the information with the FBI is basically, we give them information, they don't give us much information. Jimmy Gilday. They come into a city like Chicago, and you got some young agent from Dubuque, Iowa, who was good on his hockey team. Now he's an FBI agent. Charlie Ford also felt a certain way about the suburban guys on the task force, suggesting they weren't up to the job. They may have never had a, a murder in the town in the entire history of the town, so you know, God only knows how, how efficient their detectives would be. But we we had we handled it as best we could. But one task force member from a suburban police department thought CPD's work wasn't exactly making the dream work. He called the Chicago police a pain in the neck. At some point, tensions were flaring in all directions, not just between CPD and the FBI, and not just between CPD and the suburban guys. It started brewing between the suburban detectives and the FBI, too. One of the task force members, a deputy coroner we talked to, took a look at that first meeting and said, there are too many cooks in this kitchen. One of our sources called it turf problems. The federal government was exercising jurisdiction over everything. The state police was exercising jurisdiction over everything. Jeremy Margolis, assistant U.S. attorney at the time and one of the task force members. The local police departments were concerned about everything, but the way we divvied up responsibilities, they would be focused more on those facts and that investigation that related to the homicide in their jurisdiction. A.K.A. turf problems. The FBI, the state police, Chicago police, and suburban detectives were all trying to work together. That is a lot of cooks. There were disagreements about all kinds of things, like the Johnson-Johnson reward money, and whether it should be given out at all. At another point, the FBI planted a story in the Chicago Tribune without telling a local detective. That kicked up dust. The FBI asked a columnist for the Tribune to write about Mary Kellerman, the 12-year-old Tylenol victim. He'd drop in specifics about Mary's parents in his column, like their home address and the location of Mary's grave. And the FBI thought maybe the killer would visit one of those places and they'd catch him. When the column ran, the local detective in Elk Grove Village knew that that story had been planted. But he hadn't been told about this in advance. He felt the FBI and the state police, the very people who were supposed to be his partners, had blindsided him. And he and his chief were angry. When the detective confronted the FBI and the state police, they blamed each other for keeping him in the dark. He said the other agents apologized, but the trust had been broken. It also wasn't a good look for the Tribune. The newsroom was not just covering the story, but working in concert with law enforcement. In today's era, it would be unlikely for journalists to blur the lines like that. The disagreements on the task force were big and small. 
and would get involved. That petty nonsense, I was concerned about solving the crime. Jeremy Margolis, former assistant U.S. attorney, he told us that turf wars are bound to happen in big investigations like this. Look, like any other series of government bureaucracies, there's always tension between agencies. Marquette 10 is one of a thousand reasons why there's tension. Personal jealousy, personal ambition, jurisdictional turf fights. I mean, there's 10,000 reasons why people compete with each other. Margolis said that despite the competition, everyone was devoted to solving this crime. One of the leaders of the task force at the time was Tyrone Fainer, or Ty for short. In 1982, he was running for attorney general of Illinois, a former federal prosecutor with a strong track record. He was an expert at putting criminals away. We sat down with him in April, and we asked him what he thought about the turf problems. That's overstating it. There wasn't that much tension. That's being made a whole cloth all these years later. The distrust went beyond the supposed turf wars or petty nonsense, depending on your perspective. And then, do you remember, like, who gave Ty Fainer his nickname? Tom Law Ty. I, don't, I have no idea who gave that one, but it was perfect. <laughs> it was perfect. Chicago Police Detective Charlie Ford. In fall 1982, Ty Fainer was running for election to keep his job as attorney general. When the Tylenol murders happened, the statewide election was less than five weeks away. Fainer was down in the polls. As part of his job as Tylenol Task Force leader, he'd call press conferences every day, sometimes twice a day, to give a status update to the media. And he was on TV every night, and everybody was watching. And he would say things like, we have four suspects, we got three, now we got one, we have five. Like detectives Jimmy Gilday and Charlie Ford, Boehner's critics thought he was milking the Tylenol case for his own campaign, possibly to win the election. Some worried that maybe Feiner secretly knew who the killer was, but was waiting until the right moment before the election to make an arrest. Feiner told us he was simply acting like a responsible law enforcement officer, just trying to keep the public informed. I'm a politician. I'm the attorney general. Uh, and uh, uh, am I doing this for, you know, God and country, or am I handling this because I can be on TV every day? That was the last thing I wanted to be every day. And that was driving people crazy. Either way, Ty Fainer had never been more well-known in Illinois. He inched up in the polls. I don't think we've spoken to a single detective in this case, regardless of city or suburb that they come from, who isn't still frustrated 40 years later by the politics. It was all politics at the time, especially election year. Charlie Ford and Jimmy Gilday made a decision. They weren't going back to the task force meetings anymore. Their superintendent could send somebody else to drive out to the suburbs in five o'clock traffic. Ford and Gilday would work the case from their own desks and in their own station at Belmont and Western. The Chicago police set up their own tip line. Then from then on, they started getting all kinds of tips and clues coming in. And they, they brought in like 10 or 15 other detectives from other areas and they put them in our office just to handle the phone calls. But just like the task force tip line, most of the leads were weak. Because they were getting, you know, you get guys with psychics. Oh, you know, it's a, it's a woman with a red hat with a, with a kangaroo uh, on her back. You know, all kinds of crazy people calling nutsy stuff in. And they were feeling all that crap. Because there were deluged with tips, you know, information. Check out my Uncle Floyd. He's nuts, you know, and stuff like that. And uh, somebody has to go and make contact with all those people if you can. 
Finally, a week after the seven victims died, there was a break in the case. When a mysterious letter arrived at the Johnson & Johnson headquarters and took the investigation in a very unexpected direction. For exclusive details about Paula Prince, the Tylenol Task Force, and more, visit chicagotribune.com forward slash Tylenol Murders. Unsealed, the Tylenol Murders is executive produced by Will Melnadi from At Will Media and Mitch Pugh from the Chicago Tribune in association with AudioChuck. Produced by Claire Ty, Jessica Glazer, and Anne-Margaret Warner. Edited by Morgan Springer. Fact-checked by Wu Dan Yan. Production support from Clementine Ford, Molly Getman, Zach Rapone, Matt Hickey, Andrew Holtzberger, Seth Richardson, and Mark Van Heer. Original music by Hannes Brown. Reported by us, Christy Gutowski and Stacey St. Clair. Mm-hmm.